Uh, Romans 6, 1 to 14, you'll find it on page 1132, 1132. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. Well, keep that open as we have a look at it. Um, it's not the easiest passage in the Bible to uh, quite get our heads around, because really we don't think quite the same way as Paul writes. Well, the gospel of received righteousness, in other words, a right relationship with God which um, is given to us, as opposed to an earned righteousness that we have to clock, enough, clock up enough merit, as it were, to gain a place in God's good books. That is radical. That was not something they saw coming in Paul's day. And it is not something that we naturally think of ourselves. It says our moral efforts cannot contribute one bit to our salvation. And that message is unique amongst all the world religions. Now Paul knows from experience that a question immediately comes up in any discussion of this gospel. If our good deeds are worthless for earning our salvation, then why bother to be good at all? If the gospel says you're saved by grace, not by a good life, won't that message leave the door open to immoral living? Especially when they reflected back over their people's history in the Old Testament, that at times when they were particularly bad, that was the time when God increased his grace, as it were, in order to keep his salvation plan on track. So Paul raises the question, 6 1. Shall we say, go on sinning that grace may increase? 
Now, of course, what this does show is that his supposed critic fundamentally misunderstands the doctrine of justification by faith. So Paul takes the opportunity to yet again re-explain, but now reapply justification by faith and our union with Christ. Yet in another sense, this does introduce a new section in his letter. The objection of verse 1 leads Paul to discuss how the gospel does lead to a holy and changed life. Chapters 1 to 6 of Romans explained what God has accomplished for us in the gospel, our justification, our being declared right with him. And chapters 6 to 8, which we now enter, tell us what God will accomplish for us through the gospel, our sanctification, transforming our lives to become more conformed to the perfect example, that is Jesus. So these chapters will tell us how to experience the gospel. They tell us how the gospel is really quite seismic and produces deep and massive changes in our actual character and behaviour. So his answer to his question is, by no means, verse 2. And crucial to Paul's argument is this phrase, we died to sin in the past. So how can we live in it any longer in the future? Now Paul isn't arguing for the impossibility of believers to sin, but the moral incongruity of it. He is drawing an anomaly of living in sin when we have died to sin. Now what does he mean when he says died to sin? Well he doesn't mean, as some Christians in the past occasionally have been tempted to believe that just as a corpse doesn't respond to physical stimuli because it's dead, so the Christian who has died to sin will not be stimulated by temptation to sin. If that were the case, why is Paul just a few verses on spending four verses exhorting us to resist temptation to sin? And how would we square it? with our own experience. Have a little look at the, uh, the diagram on the back of the uh, service sheet this morning, the pictorial one. And uh, the Old Testament saw that there were two ages. There was the age they were living in after Adam's fall from grace, and there was the new age that was to come, the day of the Lord. Now, what was a surprise what they didn't kind of quite twig was that, in fact, Jesus would come twice, not once, and that he came when he was born and when he then culminated in his death and resurrection. That was his first coming. The second coming would be at the end of time. He had to come first to make it possible for us to enjoy the second and that means that we live in the overlap, that the old age is still around, the age of sin and death, and the new age of righteousness and life has begun. But that full salvation has not yet fully arrived. And just as it would be wrong to just live in the old age 
and not benefit from Christ's saving work that was his first coming, so too it would be wrong to think more of the not yet is available in the now or the already. If we go down that track of thinking some of the blessings of heaven, of the new creation, new heaven and a new earth, are available now, well then we will experience a tension between our incorrect interpretation of scripture and our personal experience. So if we think it teaches that being dead to sin means that we're not tempted anymore and that we won't sin anymore, then we'll soon discover in our experience that we've, um, the Bible as we understand it and our experience don't match up. And that mistake will lead us to either doubting God's word or to become dishonest about our experience if we hang on to our false interpretation. And that, I suggest, will result ultimately in disillusionment or self-deception. So if that's not what Paul means, what then does he mean? The rest of the chapter sets this all out in detail. But here in a nutshell... In the moment that you become a Christian, you are no longer under the reign of sin, the ruling power of sin. Remember Paul last week, chapter 5, 21, said, sin reigned so also grace might reign. In other words, sin has power, but it can no longer force its dictates on you. In Romans 1, 18-22, Paul said that outside of Christ, we are given over to our sinful desires. Previously, those sinful desires so ruled over us that we could not see them um, as sinful. And even if we did, we could not resist them. We were completely under their control. Now, however, sin can no longer dominate us. We now have the ability to resist and rebel against it. So take a look at the second diagram on your service sheet. Just to give you the big picture into which you know, Paul is talking against this background. If you imagine what life was like in the Garden of Eden before human beings rebelled against God. Adam and Eve were able to sin. They could choose to do wrong, which unfortunately is what they did do. But they were able, because they'd never experienced sin, they were able not to sin. But after the fall, they continued to be able to sin, but they were unable not to sin. They did not have the power or resources to completely resist it. Now when someone becomes a Christian, they are able to sin, and they are able not to sin. Only though when we get to glory, when we are perfected with Jesus Christ, are we both able not to sin and in fact unable to sin? That awaits us. There is a new power at work in our lives. Sin's ruling is out. We read in Colossians that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us out into the kingdom of the Son 
he loves. Or as Paul puts it in Acts 26, the gospel comes to people to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. An illustration may help. I can remember my father telling me on a few occasions of his experiences in the Second World War. Once the advancing forces reached Germany, the Nazis were effectively defeated. They were desperate for troops, so they called up old men and young boys to fight in the front line. They were poorly trained, but they could snipe away at advancing Allied forces to hold them up. A particularly nasty tactic of the Hitler youth, who were fanatical in their devotion to the Fuhrer, was to shoot the first few troops in the advancing column and then to just stand up and surrender. They were not apparently always taken prisoner. They had no chance of reversing the inevitability of defeat, but they could hamper the advance. So, having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer within you, or that it has no more power and influence within you. It does but sin no longer can dictate to you. Though you may obey it, and though you will, the Bible predicts, obey it, the fact remains that you will no longer have to obey it. You have died to it. It can be dead to you. So then, how can we, and why would we, live in it any longer, Paul suggests. So... Paul's next step is to explain when and how we may be said to have died to sin. And this is where we have to think beyond our natural individualistic kind of way of thinking, to thinking in terms of solidarity. Now, as you probably picked up from the three minutes, quite a few of our staff are rather sort of keen supporters of Liverpool who, to their credit, are doing quite well. They've got into the, work, the, the, um, the finals of the uh, European Championships, which is no mean achievement. But they, of course, are all a bit full of themselves. You know, and if they win, well, they'll be saying, we've won! Some of them have never played football in their life, at least not what I would consider playing football. And some of them don't play, I think only one of them still plays football. And I think between them, they've probably been to sort of to see a match about once each. But they will say, we have won, won't they? They identify with the team. What the team achieves, they achieve. So we are capable of thinking in terms of uh, solidarity, which is what we're required to think when we talk about uh, what it means to have died in, to sin. Do you not know, Paul asks, that, you, that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Now, Paul is thinking of baptism in the mode of immersion. The Greek word was often used to refer to being drowned or sunk, and so had connotations of death. But notice, water is not actually mentioned here. Paul is referring to the spiritual reality to which water baptism points. 
Paul has already taught us in 5, 12 to 21 that we are in union with Christ, in solidarity with him. When we believe, we are united to Christ so that whatever is true of him is now legally true of us. Since Christ died, the dead people are freed from sin. The word is also is justified, is the word translated free, but you could translate it justified. The dead people are justified from sin. So we are freed from sin, Paul is saying. But our union with Christ doesn't stop there. Since Christ's death led to his resurrection and new life, so in the same way our union with Christ will and must lead to a new life, 6.4. If we believe in Christ, the change of life will happen. We will not live in sin anymore. Now one fruit of union with Christ is certainty. Since all that is true of Jesus is true of us. And since he rose to new life, so we know that we are living that new life. And that new life points forward to the future state of perfect glory that we shall enter with him. We read 6.5, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. If we know that we are united with Christ, then we will know we are living a new life, no longer under sin's dominance. Now in verse 6, Paul introduces another fact about ourselves in union with Christ, that we should, as he puts it, know. He says, our old self has been killed so that the body of sin might be done away with. Paul is most likely saying that the old self was killed in order to get rid of the body of sin. They are two different things. So what is this body of sin and what is this old self? Well, the body of sin, well, we learn, if we look at verse 12, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its sinful desires. So the body of sin is the body controlled by sin. This is not to say that the physical body is sinful in itself or that physical desires are sinful as such, but sin expresses itself through our bodies or it reigns in us by getting us to obey its dictates. And so Paul calls it a body of sin. On the other hand, the old self is dead and gone. John Murray in his commentary says, our old self is the old self or ego, the unregenerate man in his entirety, in contrast with the new man as the regenerate man in his entirety. Tim Keller expresses it like this and at length. He says, a Christian's old self is gone completely. The old ego, the old self-understanding, the old stance of the whole person towards God and the world, all that is gone. It has died. He says, I died. And anyone who has died has been freed from sin, verse 7. As a Christian, he says, I, my truest self, really seeks God and loves his law and holiness. While sin remains in me, with a lot of strength, it no longer controls my personality and life. It is still able to lead me to disobey God, but now 
sinful behavior goes against my deepest self-understanding. When a non-Christian sins, they are acting in accord with their identity, with who they are. So why wouldn't they sin? But when someone is united to Christ, everything changes, because who they are changes. There is a new me. When a Christian sins, they are acting against their identity. Why would they sin? Therefore, if I sin, it is because I do not realize who I am. I have forgotten what has been done for me in Christ. Well, Paul seems determined not to understate the importance of our union with Christ. Verses 6 and 7 focused on what has happened to us because our death lies behind us, for we died with Christ. And now verses 8 and 9 take us to the implications of being raised in and with Christ. We believe, we know, that the power of Christ's resurrection has triumphed and will triumph in us. Paul's logic is that if we know that we died when Christ died in the past, then we can believe that we will live with him in the future. Verse 8. But how? The answer he gives, because Christ was raised to eternal life so that he cannot die again, verse 9. Death has absolutely no claim on or power over him. And since that is true of him, it is true of us, because we are united with him. And verse 10 is therefore a summary of the verses 5 to 9, as John Stott explains. There are radical differences between them, that's Christ's death and resurrection. There is a difference of time, the past event of death, the present experience of life. There is a difference of nature. He died to sin, bearing its penalty, but lives to God, seeking his glory. And there is a difference of quality. Death once for all, and the resurrection, life which is continuous. The outworking of our union with Christ and his death and new life is that we must count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, verse 11. Now why must we count or reckon or consider ourselves to be something that we already are? And the answer he gives is because being dead to sin, which is to say no longer under the dominion of sin, is like a privilege or a legal right. Though it may be true and in force, a person may not realize or utilize the right or privilege that is theirs. For example, if you happen to have sort of a wealthy aunt or grandparents, they may have set up a trust fund and put it in your name. But unless you draw on it, it won't change your actual financial condition. The trust fund should mean the end of your financial troubles, but it won't unless it is used. So we must count ourselves dead to sin because unless we act on this great privilege, 
it will not automatically be realized in our experience. We have to appropriate it to enjoy it. Thinking of Disney World, um, there's a lovely story told of a woman called Selma who spent her life um, as a domestic um, servant to uh, Walt and Lillian Disney. And when she uh, retired, they gave her some bits of paper. She didn't understand what those bits of paper meant. When she died, her descendants discovered they were very valuable shares in Disney. And she'd missed out because she didn't understand and she didn't appropriate them. And that's a possibility for anyone who's ever lived that we don't understand and we miss out on what we can appropriate from Christ. Well, what are the signs that someone is dead to sin? Verse 11. That they no longer live in it. Verse 2. Because it no longer reigns over them. Verse 12. It's easy to assume that the reign of sin refers to blatant, violent and obvious sins. But a life of outward morality or an interest in Bible study and an enjoyment in doing all our various religious activities may all be present while sin is still reigning. The sign is not outward morality. On the other hand, some people believe the reign of sin refers to any sinning at all. In other words, a life of sinlessness, which we've already kind of ruled out. Although, in fact, there is a statement in 1 John 3, 9 that reads, No one who is born of God will continue to sin. But elsewhere in the same letter, John says that no Christian can ever claim to be without sin. And we will see that Paul still describes Christians of having sin in Romans 7. So sin still has power in us. So to live in it, as opposed to being dead to it, probably means something like to swim in it, to breathe its air, or to let it be the main tenor of your life. So to live in sin would mean to tolerate it. Christians may sin, though, but the sin grieves them and repulses them. And this grief and distaste are signs that sin does not have dominion in us. Sin can only completely deceive you if you can't see it for what it is or if you don't care about what it is. This is what John must mean too, that no Christian will knowingly and uncaringly sin. They won't persist in it. It would also mean to make no progress with sin. Paul means that Christians can no longer practice sin habitually or unremittingly without really a sense of diminishment. When Christians give in to sin, they cannot remain there permanently. Again, the distaste for sin drives them out again. In summary, Paul's not saying that Christians cannot commit individual acts of sin, nor even that they cannot struggle with habitual sins. He's saying that they cannot go on abiding in the realm of sin. They cannot continue in it deliberately without distaste and diminishment. They do not live in sin anymore 
Instead, they are alive to God, verse 11. Well, before you were united with Christ, sin reigned supreme. Now the Christian is free from its control, but he or she can still cede some power, uh, some measure of power to it. We're to fight sin and free to win. In fact, we've been freed or justified to fight and win. But we must still fight. Paul's teaching is that since we can now obey sin or obey God, we must choose to obey God. And he urges us not to do two things. First, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, verse 12. And second, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments or weapons, you could translate it, of wickedness, verse 13. So sin cannot rule us, but it is waging war within us. We're not to let what you might call guerrilla forces of sin take control. They have been uh, pushed out of our hearts, but they still fight hard in our bodies to seize control in any way by us obeying the desires that it plants in us. And sin is still waging war around us. So we are not to offer any part of our body, and by that he doesn't mean you know, our limbs, just our limbs. He means all our faculties, all our natural God-given talent that we can use. And we can use them as instruments or weapons. It would be a mistake to think that the main way we live our new life, though, is simply through looking at sin and its desires and saying to ourselves, don't do that. Our new life in Christ is about living positively and proactively, about doing good things. So Paul encourages believers to do two things, which are the converse of those things we are not to do any longer. First, he says, offer yourselves to God to live with and for and like him. And second, offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. God's kingdom reigns within us and expresses itself through us as we obey him. In verse 14, Paul switches his language. He repeats that sin shall not be your master is not and must not be our ruler. And then we might expect him to say, because you are not under its power. Instead, he continues, because, it's not, because you are not under law. Instead, you are under grace. Paul is saying that knowing we are not under the law helps us break the power of sin in our lives. Verse 14 shows us that to be under sin is the same thing as being under law. It tells us that our freedom from the law as a salvation system is what makes us free from sin's mastery over us. Why? It is only as we break away from that kind of works righteousness that the power of sin is really broken. We are righteous in God's sight. If we remember this, the motives for our sin 
will be undermined. Individual sinful acts have sinful motivations. When we ask why we are moved to particular sins, we discover that our sins come because we still seek to find our justification, our identity, our sense of worthiness in other things beside God. So, to remember that we are completely loved and righteous in Christ undermines and saps our motives and desires for sin. Now, through these verses, you may have noticed that Paul repeatedly said, we know or we believe. It pops up in 3, 6, 8, and 9. And this shows any Christian who continues to sin or falls back into sin has failed to know or think out the implications of what has happened to him or her in Christ. How can we use this approach on our sin? Well, we need to realise that we're not to be stoics when it comes to sin and just build up enough resolution and say no. Paul is showing us here that sinning comes not so much from a lack of willpower as from a lack of understanding our position and of a lack of reflecting on it and rejoicing in it. So the key is to know, to remember, and to think like this. And he gives three, well, there are three examples, really, that we can think of. The first is to think that Christ paid for my life with his life. If we remember that, we will not act as if we belong to ourselves. We owe Jesus Christ our lives and salvation. We cannot live in disregard to his will. And secondly, I have been delivered out of the dominion or the reign of sin. And this means that the Spirit of God is within us. And though sin may seem too powerful to resist, that is not in fact the case. We are children of God. We can exercise authority over our sinful desires. And thirdly, I was saved by Christ specifically so I would not sin. Christ, we read in Titus 2.14, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. All the suffering and all the torture of Jesus was for that purpose. Any Christian who gives in to sin is forgetting that. And we should ask ourselves when we do. Will I defile the life Christ died to cleanse? Will I trample on the very purpose of his pain? Will I thwart the very goal of his suffering? Now Paul seems to be saying that if you can see and think about these things and still sin, it shows that you don't understand the gospel, that your old self was never crucified that you are still thinking and looking at life the old way. So we see the gospel gives us a new and different incentive for godly living than we had when we were under the law as a system for salvation. When we were using the law to save ourselves, our motives for being obedient were either fear or self-confidence. Now, however... 
we know that Jesus died for us so that we wouldn't sin. When we realize the purpose of Christ's death, and as we think of it in gratitude, we find a new incentive to be holy. We long to, and we love to, be those who, he says in verse 13, offer ourselves to God, because we know we are those who have been brought from death to life. Let us pray. prayer which comes from the end of the funeral service when we have just reflected on the life and death of someone dear to us, but which is a prayer as we reflect on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom and the grace to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth. Lead us to repent of our sins the evil we have done and the good we have not done and strengthen us to follow the steps of your Son in the way that leads to the fullness of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.